Everybody needs good neighbors Just a friendly wave each morning Helps to make a better day Neighbors Need to get to know each other Next door is only A footstep Hello, I'm Peter Eyes and welcome back to part two of Stages Conversation with the great Barry Crocker. Possessed of a magnificent voice, it wasn't long before Barry started to make his way professionally on Australian TV and stages. He also enjoyed great success in the American and UK markets. Barry describes many of his successes in this companion episode. Now it's time for some further nostalgia and continued insight to an industry now sadly past. Here's part two of my chat with the legendary Barry Crocker. I remember that I, I, I'd, I'd sort of made this little collection of, of cuttings from everything that I'd sort of done or any, any sort of ad that had appeared in the paper and I made kind of a little, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. A, a scrap, scrapbook, was it? It's a scrapbook, yeah. But it was, sort it was of a like showcase of what you A showcase, well, an invitation yeah. uh, to have a look at what I've done and how my experiences would stand me in good stead. And, uh, oh, God, I went round all the different clubs and, you know, I'd pull out my little pathetic book and they'd, the, the manager who was hiring the talent would look at it and he'd say, yeah, uh, well, I said, you know, we're not uh, hiring at the moment, you know, and I'd... Uh, and I get had a lot of rejection, you know, sort of people, I just couldn't get a go, get a shot at it. And I remember we were living in this little apartment and, and Dean had, had won herself a job at uh, Darrell Lee Chocolates in the city, in Melbourne, and uh, she would go away for the day and I would sit at home, practice my scales that I had, you know, and, uh, and, and different little bits and pieces, there, but it slowly wore me down because, uh, you know, I was, it was not getting anywhere like that, you know. And, and living in a, a part of the, of, of, the, of the block of land, there was a, a sort of a cabin type thing, you know, and in there there were, lived two hookers or, you know, pros of the day, you know. And uh, so, you know, I sort of sit at home trying, contemplating what, how I could get a gig, you know. and Because uh, you've got no representation at this time, no, have you? There's no, no manager, no, no, no agent, yeah, no, just, just doing you, it yourself. You, yeah. just, just you, that's the way it was. You know, that, uh, who is he? I don't know. Is he any good? I'm not going to put him on. Um, so I'm sitting there one day, and there's a knock at the door, you know, and I opened it and it was one of the girls to say that. She said, I haven't heard you practicing for a while, she said. And I said, no, I said, you know, I've been getting lots of knockbacks. She said, don't you worry about them. You'll be all right. I can hear you. I knew you've got something going for you. You just keep knocking on those doors. Keep knocking on those doors. And she said, that's all I want to say, you know. And I started rehearse a bit again. And so then I started to uh, go back to knocking on the different doors. There were lots of clubs in those days, you know. The cappuccino soaked five at circuit. They'd, you know, all the Italians and Greeks had opened up these little nightclubs and 
would uh, you could make a, a reasonable living out just doing the club if, if you're you? if you're if you're, you're making it, yeah. you know. But uh, later on, they'd be called the cappuccino soap fiber because that, that was uh, good money to get in those days. But then it was, uh, you know, I'd be happy with anything I could get to supplement the, the salary coming into the family. And so I went down one day and uh, I knocked on the door of a place called South Pacific, right on the the uh, the sea. And it was a, a fairly new club, you know, and they'd been built. Uh, you know that uh, they were sort of developing the whole area, and this club was a new club. And I walked in, and uh, I said, "Can I speak to the manager?" He said, "That's me." And there was an Italian guy, and he said, "He said, what do you want?" I said, "You know, I'm an entertainer." Yes, I said, "You know, I'm just wondering if uh, if you're looking for anyone." He says, "Not, no, no, I'm not looking for anyone." I said, well, how, how would it be if I, if I came down and, and did a free show for you and you could see what I can do, you know, because the girls would give me a bit of confidence. Yeah, yeah. And he said, because you come down here for nothing, you come, you sing and you do for nothing? And I said, yeah. He said, all right. Yeah, you can do. So I'd uh, arrived at the, at, the, at the club and uh, I went into the... The, the men's toilet, you know, the men's dressing room, and I was applying the makeup, you know. In, a, in those days, I'd, I'd learned to do makeup with matchsticks, and in with with grease paint, you see. So you put the matchstick in the, the grease paint, and you you line yeah. your eyes with it, you see. Then you put, get a little bit of red, and you put a bit of blush on your cheeks. <laughs> you know. Carmine, wasn't that called that yeah. color? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you, so you and he ca he came in while I was doing that, you know, and he looked at me and he went straight out again, you know. And so, anyway, I went on and did, uh, the audience were there, they, 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 they uh, you know, I talked to the band and we, we worked out what I could do, what I, what I couldn't do, and with things where I didn't need accompaniment, I did, and uh, played the guitar, and uh, so, yeah, I did well, and he, he said, uh, well, uh, I talked to the band to see what we can do, you know. He says, it's after the show. And, and uh, I was sitting there with some tea or Vicky's or something like that. We are just having a little respite after the thing. And uh, he said, we talked to the band. So we talked to the band. And he said, you, uh, he said, you've got to learn to play something to be in the band, didn't do the show, you know. I said, I said to the musicians, what, what can I play? They said, well, you can be the bass player. I said, I don't know how to play a bass. He said, no, no, no. He said, we'll, make, we'll be making plenty of noise. Just put your fingers on it and hit, hit, hit the lower strings and you don't make a sound and it'll, it'll you know, it'll you'll, right. you'll get by, you know, and you can have, you'll get the job, which I, I took up on, you know, because I immediately developed blisters on my fingers <laughs> hitting the string. But... It worked, and I, I was in being employed, and I, I, I was just getting a meager wage, but I was working and learning still, and you know, and rock and roll had just started. So, you know, I had the guitar, which is basic, my guitar then was basically a, a big ukulele, you know, so. <laughs> but I decided that I'd become a bit of a rock and roll singer, you know. 
So apart from the jazz songs and the, the standards that I loved doing, I would get on to the, the bandwagon of this new thing that had hit the world, you know. Rock Around the Clock and Heartbreak Hotel, you know. It's a, so I learned these simple chords, you know, those sort of chords, the three chords and the truth, that's all you had. You, know, it's like, you could sing almost anything to those three chords. So I did that and that, they, they loved that. All the, and they started getting a younger group in there and it became quite quite a thing, you know, that I was making a bit of a name for myself, you know, uh, in this strange kind of rock and roll genre. And uh, so I, I did that for some time and uh, the rival, the biggest rival club was a place called the Blue Derby on Fitzroy Street, or not, just off Fitzroy Street it was. And it was, uh, it had a reputation and uh, run by a guy called Joe Dufresne, he's another Italian. And he came down and he saw the act and he said, and, he, and after the show, he, he, he called, called me aside. He said, how much are you getting here? You know, and I told him, whatever it was. He said, well, I'll up that. He said, he said I'll give you a, a pound a night, pound a show. You only have to do the show and a free meal. You can have a steak every night if you like, you know. <laughs> so I went to, went to my dear friend at the, the South Pacific. I said, I've had this offer, and, you know, he's up the salary for me, and I only don't have to play the bass, I can just do the show, and he's giving me a free meal. I said, can you match it? He said, he said well, he said, I think this would be a step up for you. You should take it. He said, very, very kindly, you know. He's sort of looking out for me in a sense. So I took it, you know, and then that's where I learned to play the drums. And because uh, after, after I'd done my show with the band there, that were a slightly better band than, than the South Pacific's band, uh, I would sit in on the drums, because give the drummer a break and I would sit in and I'd play brushes and learn to play rhythm and I had a sense of rhythm and I played the drums, learned how to play that, which would come in very handy when television arrived because uh, there's a show called Open House on Channel 9. Isn't it great that there's been these people along the way, whether it be your dad or the bloke, the manager at the docks yeah. or the, the lady of the night or this Italian gentleman who've all yeah. given you that, that confidence yeah. and um, it's all right to it's go a, ahead. It's, it's that yeah. little kick along. Yeah. That have, you know, you go through your down times, of course, but you get that little kick that says, I'll give it another shot. And I never thought I'd feel this way And as far as I'm concerned I'm glad I got the chance to say that I do believe I love you and if I should ever go away Well just close your eyes and try to feel the way we do today And then if you can remember You keep smiling, you keep shining Knowing you can always count on me for sure That's what friends are for For the good times and bad times hey, I'll be on your side forevermore That's what friends are for 
Never thought you'd feel this way Well, you came and opened me Now there's so much more I see Oh, well, by the way, I thank you And then, for the times when we're apart Well, just close your eyes and know These words are coming from my heart And then if you can remember That's what friends are for For the good times and bad times I'll be on your side forevermore That's what friends are for You keep smiling, you keep shining Knowing you can always count on me for sure That's what friends are for For the good times and bad times I'll be on your side forevermore That's what friends are for You keep smiling, you keep shining cars That's what friends are for So the 50s and 60s are a time when a lot of performers are going overseas to make their mark. Yeah. When do you go overseas? And well, I, I, you know, I, I had, uh, wanted to go overseas because that was the, the go. As I said earlier, everyone said, you've got to go overseas if you want to become famous or have success. But with television, uh, that's a, another weird little story uh, because television had just started no one knew anything about television I remember that there was a story went around about the ABC and they were looking for staff and uh, this English chap had gone in there to to get a job and uh, they said what experience have you had he said I worked at uh, BBC in London and they said oh, and he, he finished up becoming the general manager but in, in effect he'd just been a floor guy sweeping up and doing <laughs> so no one knew anything about it and it, you, everyone was learning on the ground um, so anyway there was this this show called open house and it was a Sunday afternoon open format where news of the day would be discussed uh, entertainers would come on and do their little party piece and and uh, so the, they got on to me and uh, can you come in yeah I did, yeah, I did a couple of Elvis Presley songs, you know, because it just fitted into the, their program perfectly. And then uh, I, I, I had to go and get the money. So I think they paid either on the Monday or Tuesday after the show. And uh, they had to go to their office. I went to the office and I heard the uh, producer of the show saying, on the phone saying what we really need we've got to get a, a a regular band for the show we've got to get a band for the show that that you know that so we don't have to keep getting new bands every week you know we need a regular band you know 
so when I went in there to see to get my little money it was fairly little and, and uh, so I said to him I, I couldn't excuse me for overhearing but I, I heard that you were looking for a band and he said yes we need a band for uh, for uh, for the show uh, and uh, I think we need to have something that's regular and, and so I told him I, I had a band he said uh, well how many pieces and I said, well, what, what were you looking at? He said, oh, four or five, you know. At this, I said, exactly what I've got. I said, you know. He said, well, can I hear them? I said, yes. Yeah, sure. And uh, when? I said, well, uh, when are you free? Uh, and he said, uh, he looked at his little diary, and he said, oh, th this Thursday, I can see you, afternoon. I said, yeah, it's fine, that's, that's good. Now I'll, I'll call you back and tell you where and uh, everything like that. So then I immediately rushed out of there, running virtually, and went to the piano player, who was the Blue Derby guy, and said, I, I, got, a, I, got, a, where, I got a band on TV. It's every week, you know. And he said, what do you mean? I said, he's a Dutchman. And he said, what do you mean? Uh, I said, I got a band. I said, what the hell do you... How can you, what, you can't play the bass, you know? I said, no, no, no. He said, I'll, I'll be the drummer. I, I can play the drums, you know, which I'd learned to do. And I said, we've got to get the other guys together. You've got to, we've got to do it very, very quickly, you know? So he said, oh, well, and he was half excited, you know? So I, I think I'd woken him up, you know? And uh, so he said, I should get the guys together. I said, well, we're going to rehearse. I said, going to he wants to see us Thursday. Uh, where are you going to go? I said, I, I don't know. I'll find somewhere, you know. And I remember that I, we got together and rehearsed. And I remember had, having done a, a couple of gigs at the Victoria Hotel on the Esplanade there. And uh, so I called up them. I knew the guy there. And I said, look, I said, I, Said I've got a big favour. I'm auditioning my band uh, there. Can we use uh, your facility? You know, to have the guy come along. He said, Yeah, yes, that's fine. Yeah, sure, Barry. You know, and I said, Great, thank you. So we all turned up. We all got set up and everything, and uh, we played about three songs. There's a bit of an Afro-Cuban sort of thing going, and uh, a bit of swing and a bit of jazz. And uh, what do you think? And uh, the producer said, yeah, that's fine, yeah, yeah, we'll see you Sunday. And all of a sudden, now I have a band on TV. Unbelievable, you know, but that's that was TV then, you know. No one asked any pertinent questions. <laughs> and so we turned up, and the artists that were on, they are all singing stuff of the day, you know. Uh, so I kind of knew that, I knew you had a you know, play that, and I play this, you know, a bit of sticks here and some brushes, and we got through it all. He said, that's terrific, oh, that's great, that's good. And I had that for some months, <laughs> until one day, a singer by the name of Ormond Douglas came in, and uh, he had this arrangement, you know. And uh, I said, how's it go? He said, well, just follow the drums. Just follow the chart. He said, oh, okay. So I went across to the piano player, the Dutchman, and I said, how does this go? He said, I don't know. He said, I can't read drum music. 
said, I, I can't read properly by music. How can I help you? You know. So somehow we stumbled through this, and of course, Ormond went to the producer and said, These guys are hopeless, you know, they couldn't read the music. And uh, so uh, we got. <laughs> We got fired. Oh, right. <laughs> well, not fired. Let yeah. go. You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I, I managed to con my way through that because, as I said, then who knew about television? People were just happy to see something on a screen. Well, how did the Barry Crocker show come about? Well, that's well, that was a whole different story altogether. Mm. You know, that was a, we've got to go through America and all that to get to that because right. I came out of America and. Uh, was brought home in 1965 to uh, to be the first Australian star at the Lido nightclub in Melbourne. It was uh, the most posh nightclub that had ever been built, and it was absolutely beautiful in gold and green, and it uh, it was absolutely sensational. They had two American acts uh, earlier, and they full ballet, full full. I think it was 12, 13 piece orchestra, you know. And uh, so that's, 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 I came back from America, so I was working in America. Start spreading the news, New York, New York, New York. I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I like a cozy fire when a storm is due. I like potato chips, moonlight, and motor trips. How about you? I'm mad about good books. I can't get my fill. Shall Pfeiffer's looks give me a thrill? A holding hands in the movie show when all the lights are low may not be new. But I like it. How about How about you? Yeah, I want to wake up in that city that doesn't sleep with you. I like potato chips, moonlight and motor trips. How about you? I'm at about good books and I, I can't get my They give me a thrill Now holding hands in the movie show When all the lights are low May not be new
Fox thing was was very interesting because I'd been working in England, you know, and uh, had done fairly well. I'd had my ups and downs there, you know, and I'd, I'd travelled to Germany and uh, places like that, working for the American military, you know, in their floor shows, and doing everything from comparing to doing my own spot or just the spot, uh, you know. Uh, so all that had gone quite well and uh, the reputation in England was building. I was offered a sort of a, an apprenticeship, if you like, in a way, that uh, I was asked to stay in England and uh, by Billy Marsh, who was then director of everything virtually, and he said, uh, I can see you taking over Sunday night at the Palladium. You know, as as compare, like, you know, uh, uh, that was you know the prime job, you know, and I, I'd, I I had to turn him down because I'd had so much success with the American forces and everything uh, that I, I'd already decided I was going to New York, you know, because I had a friend there, an American comic who I'd met along the way, who would look after me if I went to New York and get me sorted out. And uh, so I had to turn it down. And of course later, you know, Bruce Forsyth and Jimmy Tarbuck and all these people would go on to that, that, that wonderful job. But I, I, I kind of knew that America was calling me, so I had to go to America. And uh, I arrived there and I was just gobsmacked, you know, because Bernie Travis was the comic's name and he picked me up at the airport. And uh, we drove and I just, driving into New York, I mean, I couldn't believe the skyscrapers. This is 1965, you know, uh, nothing compared to today. But, uh, you know, to me, they were just like, you know, the tallest building in Melbourne was, was probably six or seven stories high. And uh, so I was just enamored with the whole place and I, I staying with him in his, his apartment there. And uh, one day he said to me, I'm going to see my agent today. You want to come? I said, yeah, sure. You know, so I joined him and went to the office of Marvin Schneer, his name was. And uh, it, we went in, we sat there, you know. And uh, he had nothing for Bernie. He said, no, I've looked at your book. He said, no, there's nothing here, nothing for you. And he said, what do you do? He said to me. I said, oh, yeah, I, I do a and Bernie jump. Oh, he's very good. He does this and he does that. And he sort of took over for me. And he said, do you want to work here? And I said, yeah, I'd love to work here. He said, all right. He said, I'll give you an audition. Uh, and he picked up the phone, picked up the phone, and he called the village barn. I didn't know it was the village barn. That Mr. Harowitz. Mr. Harowitz, yeah. He said, i got a guy here from Australia, you know, he, uh, I believe he's pretty good, you know, you want to slot him into the show tonight and see what he can do, you know. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll send him down, his name's Barry Crocker, you know. So I walked out of there sort of elated, but I felt bad for Bar Barney because I'm, I'm suddenly getting a gig or a chance and Barney's not, you know. So I went down to the village barn that night and, and pulled together with the musicians early, uh, did my little rehearsal and put the guitar and, and stuff. Now it was a proper guitar. Uh, and uh, 
after the show, the Harowitz brothers called me into their office. They said, yeah, we, we like what you did. And you, you can start if you like, you know. I said, yeah, I said, yes, every night, you know. I said, do two spots a night, since we have a changing audience. And I forget the salary, but it was, you know, 25 bucks or something a show. But you've got a gig within a week of arriving in New York. More or less, yeah. 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 It's just, just sort of quite amazing. And uh, so I was doing this, and, and the Village Barn was... Uh, I, I, I just thought it was a, another showcase, but when I saw a Fred Astaire movie years later, and uh, they had that montage of how you, the wheels go around of the train and all the things, and coming up, part of that, the, all the show business lights was the village barn. <laughs> you know, it's, wow, I worked in the place, and I found out that Danny Kay had started there. Or Anyway, several stars that were around today had actually sort of had their start at the village barn. So that sort of inspired me a lot. And uh, so what, what would happen, they were on the bus route of see New York by night. And what would happen is that the village barn would be empty and all of a sudden two or three buses would pull up, the place would be packed, and the sh they'd put on the show, and they'd have a meal, you know, and, and then off they'd go. And then later, <laughs> another busload of people would come in. And that's how it went, you know, so it was, a, it was quite a, an unusual sort of gig in a sense, but it was it, it was fine, you know. And, uh, Dick Sean was the other comic that I was trying. He was a, a film star, died far too young. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it was I was in New York working, you know. It was quite amazing. And then I I went up the road to the Bonsoir, which was the room then that Barbara Streisand had started in. Yeah, and. Uh, I got a gig there, you know, and I worked with Tony Bennett's brother, Johnny Bennett, who basically sang his brother's songs, and, and there was a, a little South American girl, was a little vocalist, very pretty, and she said, so the three of us would do the thing, and I was, I'd be quite amazed, you know, that I was standing in the place where Barbara Streisand had been discovered, and it was run by the Mafia, you know, it was a, one of those kind of clubs. and. Uh, you know, I'd stand there at night and say, is this where she stood? This is where Barbara, this is where Barbara stood, you know, <laughs> and, hey. and do this. And I, one, one night I had the realization that I'm, I'm working in New York, the biggest town in the world, and I'm, I'm doing good, you know. This is not right, I'm only from Geelong, you know, all these thoughts were going, so I was singing. And I, my, I could hear my voice wavering, you know, and I said, no, 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 no. It was like grabbing at straws in the air. And I had to pull myself back into doing what I did. But that was, uh, that was another thing. And I, there's wonderful characters around there. Uh, that the, the lighting man, his name was Moonbeam McLightswitch. And I said, how did you get that name? He said, well, he, he said, I got it from a compatriot of yours named Edwin Duff. Because he always called me Moonbeam McLightswitch. Moonbeam McLightswitch. And I, I, the connection was incredible. But that, then, so what happened is that uh, after working in the Bonsoir, <coughs> uh, the, the people who held the money and everything, they said, uh, well, this kid might have something here, you know. So they came to me and they said, uh, we think you've got something. Well, I'd like to invest fifty thousand dollars in your 
career. And I said, what, what? She said, well, you see, you know, we, you know, we think we can make something with you. And um, I said, well, I said, you know, I said, I've got a family in Australia. I haven't seen them for over years. And, you know, I've, I've been working around and yeah, yeah I, I've got to go back and, and see them. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll pack up everything in Australia and come back if you're willing. He said, yeah, that's fine. Okay, we'll, we'll buy that, you know. So then that's when I flew back to Australia. And Neil Harold, who eventually became my manager, was a mate, got me this gig. He, he told them how the, uh, this, this guy, in, uh, this Australian in America, was killing him, you know, and he was uh, coming back and you should use him and all that sort of thing. So uh, I got the gig at the at the the Lido nightclub, and that went from there to Channel Ten had just been built, and they were doing a new show called Sixty Six and All That in nineteen sixty six, and they were looking for talent, and people had been into the Lido and they'd seen me and they thought this guy could fit into this show because it was going to be a sort of facsimile of uh, the Mavis Bramson show. And so I auditioned for them, they flew me up to uh, Sydney, and uh, yeah, yes, we like what you've done. And then I said, you, you have to talk to Neil Harrell, my manager, about the salary. And uh, so Neil went up to uh, Sydney with his little briefcase, I remember being very businesslike, because he was only he was younger than I was and uh, very competent. And he went up there and unbelievably, he said, when they made the offer, he said, he said, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't insult my client with that, uh, with that fee, that's ridiculous, but thank you for your time, and walked out on them. Yeah, <laughs> and I couldn't, he came home, and I, he said, uh, and no, I told them that you wouldn't do that, that was a ridiculous fee. I said, but, but Neil, it's television. I can go on television. But this is I can learn the, the exposure. Proper. I could, yes, the exposure. And so, is it going to make a hit show? And he said, No, I wouldn't let you do it. And so, time went by. A little time went by. He got another call. He said, We'd like to re renegotiate. Come up to Sydney. So he flew back up to Sydney. And. Uh, same thing happened, you know, they said, made you an offer. He said, oh, this is, this is, you're talking the wrong kind of figures here, you know, it's a very talented man, you know. And uh, they said, well, what do you want? And he, he put a figure out, which was just a little above, above the, what they wanted, you know. And I said, oh, we don't know. And Carol Ray, who was the show was built around, was sitting at the table that day. And they looked at you no know, humming and hiring, you know that, and and they also well that's that's really the final offer, you know that I, I can't let you, and and then Carol piped up and she said, now do you want him or not? To the producers, and he said yes, we want him. He said you'll give him the bloody money, and I was in. Arthur Kipps has found a shiny new sixpence, and Anne agrees that the coin is to be their good luck symbol, and each give half a sixpence as their token of love. In the story, Kipps inherits great wealth, but comes to find that money is no substitute for real love. 
are read in the Sunday papers what lovers' tokens are. There's amulets and talismans like a ring or a lucky star. It says that half a sovereign is a thing they use a lot. Sixpence—it's the only thing I got. Still, half a sixpence is better than half a penny. Is better than half a farthing. Is better than none. It's a token of. It's a token of our eternal love. When you're far away, when you're far away, touch it every day. And though that half a sixpence, sixpence, can only mean half a romance, romance. Remember that half a romance is better than none. But when I'm with you, but when I'm with you, one and one make two, one and one make two, and likewise. Two. Mutual friend Tony Lamont has been yeah. sharing me some clips from that show. You know, you used to profile musicals, did you, in, in every episode? Oh, yeah. Because you know, yeah. I've seen wonderful clips of half a season. Well, if you go into my, my YouTube, you know, yeah. you'll see heaps of stuff, you know, that I've got about 30 clips up there, you know, and about three or four with Tony, you know. And we were, we were a pretty good team, you know. That, uh, that was at uh, that. Channel 10 and Channel 9, when I did The Sound of Music. But they're all sort of labels, so you can look at stuff there. Yeah, yeah. And an extensive TV career, of course. I mean, you eventually taking over from Bobby Lim in The Sound of yeah, Music. And, yeah, um, well, that's, that's a whole another story. Another chapter, and, and, and winning the gold, Logie, as most yes. popular personality on, on yeah, TV. Yeah, Huge. eventually lead to that. Can we talk about your film career? Because, of course, a lot of people would know you from the, the iconic Barry McKenzie yeah. films. How did Barry McKenzie come about? When I was doing the Barry Crocker show, uh, we'd often do sketches, you know, uh, because it was a, a comedy music show. And I, I had a character there that was called Ronnie, who was a knockabout bloke who uh, would always drink a lot, you know, and 
he would impose himself on people and he'd, to tell them his stories or his jokes. And he'd always say, well, I had a tricky time last night. I tell you, I tell you, I went to this pub and I was there. And he would tell us. And he, so he was an iconic character and got into all sorts of trouble. And the tag of the sketch every week was in, he'd finish up in jail. They'd do a close-up of his face. They'd pull back and he was in jail again. You know, and he'd, I'd walk up to the boat and say, oh, it's very time now, oh, it's very time. That was his catch for my praise, you know. So unbeknownst to me, Barry Humphreys, who was uh, quite famous then, you know, from, from his own career, uh, but still drinking, uh, and he had great success in England with the comic strip with Nicholas Garland, who did the, the cartoon work. For Private Eye. The Private Eye, yeah, yeah. for The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, you know. And, and, and this ochre bloke would terrorise the palms, you know, so it was like that. And so one day I'm driving into work and uh, I see a headline on The Listener Inn, it was called, The Listener Inn. Uh, TV, it was a TV... Uh, Guide was it? TV guide, TV guide but yeah, yeah it, was a, it was more. It was sort of like a a broadsheet in a sense. It was, a, it was a big, big, big sort of thing, much bigger than TV Week or anything like that. And uh, the, the headline, because I could, you know, I was in the car and I could read that uh, Aussie TV starters, uh, Aussie TV starter to star in Hollywood movie or, or something to that effect. You yeah, know, yeah. TV star to star in. New Australian movie, yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I must buy that, and it might be a mate of mine, you know. So, so I opened up the paper, and it was Barry Crocker. It's a star, and I, I said, "What? No one's talking." So I sussed out where Barry was, found out his number, and I called him. I woke him up, I think, because it was in the afternoon. But he was, and uh, I said, "Barry," he said, "Yes." He said, Barry Crocker here. He said, oh, hello, mate. He said, said oh, I hope I didn't wake up. He said, oh, I'm all right. He said, he said, I just saw a headline where you've told Listener in that I'm going to be starring in your new movie. And he's a bit of a pause. He said, oh, he said, have they released that, have they? I said, yes. He said, well, we better get together and have a talk, I suppose. You know. <laughs> I said, I guess we better. So... Then we arranged for a meeting with Barry and myself, and uh, as I said, he was still drinking then. He became sober later, but uh, the film would help him to become sober. Uh, so we arranged a meeting at my house with my wife and, and, and the kids who I had there. And we sat around and we discussed, he discussed the movie and so forth. And I, I always wanted to be in a movie because when I was a kid I used to go to the Astor Flea House, which is a dirt floor cinema in Geelong, in Chilwell. <laughs> so I'd always wanted to be in the movies, you know. So, you know, it, it was an interest to me, you know. So I said, yeah, I'd, 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 be, I'd be interested, I'd be interested, yeah. So, yeah, can we get a script and everything? She said, I'm working on the script, he said. He said, yeah, and then off he went, you know, into the ether of the day. And... Uh, so I never heard anything more about it. And then I'd been uh, given the job by Bruce Gingell to take over The Sound of Music because Channel 10 at that time with Barry Crocker's Say It With Music was up against Bobby's and we'd been beating him in the ratings. And that for Channel 10, that was something then, you know. 
but we had we I insisted on being a more modern show where, where Bobby's had been nostalgia and 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 the chocolate soldier <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that you yeah. know uh, so uh, Bruce I, I, I decided I was going to leave Channel 10 because they had decided that I was getting too much publicity and so they wanted to take me down a peg or two and uh, you know that's, that's that's the way things work they called me into the office and they said simply, we, we want to uh, take your name off, say it with music, just make it say it with music, with uh, starring and then uh, top of the bill still. And, and, and we want to uh, take your name off the dressing room door. Uh, he said, you know, everything's the same, everything's perfectly the same, but we want to make those improvements to the show. And I said, they're improvements, you know. He said, yeah. So I said, no, I, I, I think I've, I've come too far, <laughs> cheeky bugger. Uh, I think I've come too far to, to let you do that. I said, you know, I've worked for this, you know, and worked hard, you know, rehearsed, you know, we had to learn so much stuff each week, you know. And uh, he said, well, we really want to do this. Les Peard was his name, as an American guy who'd taken over from the, you know, he said, Les Peard, we want to do this, you know. And <laughs> so I, I said, no, I said, if that's the case, I want to leave. He said, you want to leave? He said, I said, yeah. And I went and told the, the cast, you know, who were waiting on what this meeting was about. And Neil Williams said, mate, he said, you can't leave television. He said, you don't leave television. If you're on it, you stick for it through thick and thin. It's what makes the stars, you know. And I said, no, Neil, I said, I feel strongly about it. And I've got, to, I've got to follow my intuition. He said, oh, mate, he said, Geez, oh, God, he said, you're making the wrong choice there. So I left. I sat at home for about six months, just doing my cabaret and all that. So still working and doing well, making money. And, and I thought, oh, well, maybe Neil was right. Maybe my television career is over. Mm. And I got a call from Bruce Kinjell one day, and he said, Barry, he said, I'd like to come in and have a talk to you. Would you come in and uh, see me? He said, yes, of course. So I went into Channel 9, and Bruce and I sat down, and we had a chat. He said, uh, we're thinking that, uh, of letting Bobby Lim go. I said, Bobby, really? He said, yeah. And uh, so we're wanting a new direction for the show. He said, your, your sound of music, say it with music, had done so well, and I like what you were doing there. And, um, we thought you might be the person to take over from Bobby. I said, "What? Yeah, no, we'll make it. We'll call it Barry Crocker's Sound of Music." And he talked me into it. He was paying. He was going to pay me less than Bobby, right. but that didn't matter. No, that, that didn't matter because it was a prestige no show, yeah. and I could choose who I wanted to be on it. And so I said, they, they, "Then Channel Ten would bring Bobby over to Channel Ten to have." Bobby Lim say it with music. Changing deck chairs. On the Titanic, it, it, it proved to be because, you know, it, it, it didn't gel, uh, Bobby's show there, because they had the same people with the same sort of go. But I managed to keep Bill Newman for the sound of music. I said, for the, for the you know, that's the type of music, and he's perfect for that. And, uh, and Tony Lamond, 
Telly Lewand is terrific, you know, she's right for that. And then we've got a whole new bunch of people, you know, all young people that are uh, up and comers, you know. And, and, and Don Lane, did he arrive? Don Lane? Oh, yeah, Don, Don was there. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was, we were great mates by then, you know, yeah. so we we'd sort of made friends with each other and, and, and he's one of my best pals. So he was thrilled that I was going to Channel 9 to be a stable mate, you know, with him. Uh, so, you know, the, the Clearpool seniors, who I'd had at, at, on my show at, at, at 10, I said, I brought, I brought them over with Claire, leading them, and I said, you've got to get a whole bunch of glorious-looking young people, lots of energy and beautiful and all that, sort of, which we put together. And uh, we had our stars, we had the, the regulars, we had Bill and Carlo, who I'd had at Channel, the, the, they were the dancers, you know, from Canada, and uh, so we 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 started out. We we uh, we knocked them over. We killed them with the uh, with our sound of music, and uh, and Bobby's unfortunately uh, didn't rate as well, and so they changed it to a couple couple of other shows and brought in some uh, English stars to help with it all. And uh, but it, it it kind of sunk a bit without trace after a while. But while we were going bang gangbusters over at nine, mm. and it was a, a great thrill, and it's it's because of that show that I got the gold logie, and we rated very highly, and uh, so my ideas were were uh, taken to heart by Ginjal, and given to me on a platter, which I I used, and we went through a few directors and so forth, but we we always had a a, a good show going. Peter Feynman came on board and he did some absolutely brilliant things, you know, this brilliant director. Uh, anyway, getting to your, your question somewhere back along the line. Uh, <laughs> so the same sort of thing happened with, uh, with, uh, with Channel 9. We were rating highly and very successful and won the Logies and best show on television, best variety show on television, all these sort of things. And we were going along fine. And uh, one day there was a meeting called. Sir Frank Packer had called a meeting with Bruce Kinchel. And uh, he said, <laughs> Sir Frank said, he said, why are you seeing all those puffs things on her? He said, I want to go back to the old format. I want to see. I want to see the chocolate soldier and uh, you know Mary Widow and stuff like that. I like that. And uh, Bruce said, "Well, well, Sir Frank, we're uh, we're having great success with the sound of music, and it's rating very, very highly." And he said, "Well, I don't like it." He said, "I want you to go back to the." He said, "That's it. He said, You've got to go back to the old format. Some of the Bobby Lim things. I want some of them on, you know." And uh, and. They, they had a further talk on the phone and I remember that, that later I'd learned that uh, Sir Frank had hung up in the ear of Bruce Kinjal. He said, I want it back, it's got to go back that day. He said, I'm coming in on Monday and I'm going to tell you what to sing. And Bruce had said to him, well, look, these shows take weeks in planning. You know, everything has to be, arrangements have to be done. He said, I don't care, I'm coming in Monday. And he slammed the phone down on Bruce. Then Bruce let a day go by and uh, they call up Sir Frank and I'd learned this later from Bruce. He said, I said to him, 
So Frank, we had a discussion yesterday and you hung up in my ear. He said, now I'm resigning, I'm hanging up in your ear, bang, and hung up in Sir Frank, and he'd gone, and then he went to seven. But, so I was left with Sir Frank. And we had the, the, the inevitable meeting with all the, the heavies and everything like that, and he, he wasn't there, but they, they were saying, you know, Sir Frank wants it to go back to the old format. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, you know, it can't go back to the old format, you know. And they said, yeah, we want you to go back to this. I said, no, no. <laughs> and You've got to hold your ground, don't you? And uh, well, something yeah, you believe I'd, 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 it worked at Channel 10, so I thought it could work here. But no, Sir Frank, was, he was the boss of the whole joint, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell me about your Banjo Patterson so, show. Oh, no, no, oh, we, you we, we, we still haven't finished the last show. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So now I, 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 I said I'm not going back to Channel 9 uh, next year, you know, the, the two, to take it up, I think it was 71, I think. Uh, and, and at about the same time, uh, another meeting was called with uh, Barry Humphreys this time, who had become sober, and Bruce Beresford, the director, and, and we'd have a meeting. Philip Adams, no hmm? doubt. Philip Adams, no doubt. Philip Adams, yeah. Producer, yeah. Of course, yeah. He's... Uh, he was there, and we, we had this meeting. He said, "We think we're going ahead. We've got finance with the movie. How do you feel about, you know, taking the starring role in the movie? You know, and it, it sort of came at a perfect time. I just quit Channel Nine, and I said, "Yeah, well, let's go to England and make a movie." And that's when Barry McKenzie came about, which is another whole story. <laughs> Well, that was um, a first Australian film to surpass a million dollars, I think, yep. at the Australian box office. Yes. Huge. And, and you got a, had a sequel as well. Yeah, well, the, the, the first movie, and it was, it was like there were so many stories that came out of that, you know, that I, I've written a lot of them in my first autobiography. I've written my second autobiography, but it's, it's not out as yet. It's, it's over there, sitting there. But, um, yeah, now what happened... It's, it's, it's amazing how things turn around. When the film was eventually finished and, and, and they, they, the Australian film people had sent over a, a contingent of experts and everything that had decided that they wanted to see how we were going with this first film. Uh, no colloquialisms uh, and no swearing or anything like that, you see. All had to be politically correct and, and Philip Adams when they'd go over there, um, he would take them out to have a lovely lunch, and they'd go to a nice restaurant, have a lovely lunch, and he'd take them to the set. Unfortunately, the set had, the, the shoot had gone well, and the set had moved on. Oh, gosh, we'll have to do, we'll have to do, wait till tomorrow. And this went on, and they were having lovely lunches and everything, and they went back to Australia, never knowing what we were shooting. Because if they had have seen what we were shooting, I'm sure they would have, because it was quite Hold ribald, and you know, songs like my, my one-eyed trouser snake. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was it, it, politically totally incorrect. Oh, I got a little creature. I suppose you'd call him a pet. And if there's something wrong with him, I don't have to see the vet. He goes everywhere that I go, whether sleeping or awake. God help me if I ever lost my little one-eyed trouser snake. One day I got to reading 
in an old sky so pilot's it, box. So Philip, with his smarts, it managed to keep them away from the set. But so the film was finished and uh, it came back to Australia. And then they had terrible tr problems with... They took it to various distribu distributors and that they couldn't see anything in it. Others would say, this is shocking, I'll never... No, this is dreadful. You know, no, I wouldn't lower myself to put this on the screen, you know. So they're having great difficulty, Philip and, and, and friends, in getting this movie out. So I, I was being informed, you know, they're having great trouble. I said, well, keep trying. So in the end, I think it probably Phil, he found this cinema in Melbourne that had only been, quite a large cinema, there had only been running repeats of movies because like they weren't in the chain or in the distribution uh, distribution <laughs> distribution distribution of the films. Um, so he went to them. He said, "Look," he said, "I've got this brand new film." He said, "Why don't we give it a shot?" He said, "You're only play you're playing to ten and twelve people a session. You know, let's see if we can. You know, I'll, we'll make publicity and." Uh, see how we go. So we talked this guy into do it. Yes, we'll put it on. So then Barry Humphreys and I, dressed as Barry McKenzie and Dame Edna, went on everything we could get on, television, radio, you know, press. We had pulled all kinds of stunts. You know, had a nude lady running through the, a restaurant, you know, and all of, with all the press there and so forth. So when, on the night of the premiere, uh, the, the 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 queue was round the block, was right you know right round the block, and the, the, the theatre was packed, and another, another queue formed, and then a lot of the people who saw the film came out of it and got on the end of the queue. They wanted to see it again, so we, you know, there we were again, with a, a surprising hit that ran for ever, you know, all around Australia, and, and there's one cinema in the. In, uh, rent in the West End for eight weeks, which was uh, enormous, you know, and uh, there's one cinema there that, that, that would bought it back every year and showed it for something like 16 years, <laughs> because they put it on with the Monty Python and was all part of that. But yes, you know, that was uh, uh, just a giant success that no one really expected. And uh, so that was how it all started with that, with the film. Then we did the sequel, of course, produced by Reg Grundy, and uh, never did as well as the first, but well enough, yeah. So, but th those two films, they sort of, because it, it was a, a very different uh, direction for me to go after the Sound of Music, you know. Because um, did so, you did you cop any backlash? From oh yeah, that? sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, you were the darling of uh, many yeah, audience. Yeah, I, I did. Who but, probably were quite shocked to see. Yeah, you. they yeah. were. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Some darling ladies would say, "Oh, we were so shocked. We'd never seen." You know, and I, but I had to wear it, you know, because I had this eclectic career going. So. But, but, you know, it settled down and everything. I did lots of appearances and, you know, singing nice songs and doing you know, productions of musicals and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it, it settled down. But for a little while, it was a bit touch and go. But, of course, then I had all the Barry McKenzie bands who would pack out the... The auditoriums and shows. God help me if I lost my little one on trousers
There was movement at the station, for the word had passed around that the colt from old regret had got away, and had joined the wild bush horses. <laughs> he was worth a thousand pound, so all the cracks had gathered to the fray. All the tried and noted riders from the stations near and far had mustered at the homestead overnight. But bushmen love hard riding, where the wild bush horses are, and the stock horse snuffs the battle with delight. There was Harrison, who made his pile when Pardon won the cup, the old man with his hair as white as snow. But few could ride beside him when his blood was fairly up. He would go wherever horse and man could go. And Clancy of the Overflow came down to lend a hand. No better horseman ever held the reins, for never horse could throw him while the saddle girths would stand. He'd learnt to ride while droving on the plains. And one was there, a stripling on a small and weedy beast. He was something like a racehorse undersized, with a touch of Timor pony, three parts thoroughbred at least, and such as are by mountain horsemen prized. He was hard and tough and wiry, just the sort that won't say die. There was courage in his quick, impatient tread, and he bore the badge of gameness in his bright and fiery eye, and the proud and lofty carriage of his head. But still so slight and weedy, one would doubt his power to stay. And the old man said, That horse will never do for a long and tiring gallop. Lad, you'd better stop away. Those hills are far too rough for such as you. So he waited, sad and wistful. Yeah, tell me about your association with Banjo Patterson. When did you first hear his poetry? Once again, it was one of those things that sort of just happens, comes out of the blue. I was uh, just working around everywhere, all the different clubs, and it was at the halcyon days of nightclubs and, and RSLs and leagues clubs, you know, they were bringing out stars from overseas, and, and uh, people like myself were packing the rooms, and it was, you know, just a great, great time. And uh, one day I got a call, uh, uh, and uh, it was a strange one. I said, he said uh, I'm, I'm doing, doing a play about Banjo Patterson and uh, I'm just wondering if you might be interested in playing the role of Banjo. So it's, a, it's a, six people in the cast and uh, I said, all right, well, let's, let's have a meeting, you know. Banjo Patterson, because at school, you know, I left school before my 14th birthday, you know, I'd, I'd sort of everything I'd learnt was on the street, you know. So I never knew much about Banjo Patterson. And Bill Watson was the, the, the man who was putting it together. And we had a meeting, and uh, he explained the whole thing, where he was going to go, similar to... Uh, Variety on Parade, <laughs> going to all the different towns throughout Queensland and New South Wales with the play. And uh, I looked at it and read it, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. I said, I, I explained to him, you know, I didn't really know anything about Banjo Patterson or, or any of the poets, you know, I'd never, uh, my education was very limited. He said, that's not a matter. He said, you look a bit like him, he said, and uh, I could see us having success with this show. And you're an actor. Huh? And you're an actor with a beautiful voice. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. So, uh, you know, anyway, 
I was talked into doing it. I, I, I sort of w wanted to do it, and I said, well, I'm you know, doing okay with the clubs and all that, and it's, you know, it's all wonderful. And Were you a bit scared of it, maybe, taking on yeah, a, a big well, sure, role like that? Sure. Yeah, well, sure, sure. I'm working with other actors, and new director who I didn't know or anything like that. And uh, so I said, yeah, well, okay, let's, let's do it. And we started rehearsals in a little place in uh, not far from King's Cross. It was a tiny little ex-church or something like that. So it was an abandoned building virtually, but it was, uh, I, I suppose, at the right price. And uh, so we rehearsed and we were off doing what was called Banjo the Man. Banjo the Man. And I played banjo and uh, I would, uh, and would go through his life and at the end there was the old man in the bed on his dying, on his dying bed that would uh, do the last part of the play, you know, and sort of explain everything that had gone before. I would play banjo from the age of, I think, 19. I had to be, you know, switch out sort of 19 to 56 or something like that. Uh, but, you know, I'd go through, and the poems would sort of follow the story and go and... Uh, and there was a, I think there, there were three, three guys and uh, and two girls, I think, in the in the play. I'm, you know, because I'm trying to remember it all yeah. now. And anyway, the thing was, we went out there with it, and uh, it was a very simple show. Once again, he had little screens that were put up, and he'd project different images onto that screen. You know, like when we were talking about the bush, he'd put a bush in there, and when we talked about the city, the city would be in there. And, uh, it was a simple show, easy to set up. And uh, we had very good crowds and I'm sure that Bill made quite a bit of money, you know, so we'd arranged it for you, of course. And uh, we'd travel around with it and Bill said, I'm going to bring it into Sydney. I said, well, you're going to have to really improve it. If you bring it into Sydney, you can't have little screens like that that do this, you know, it's, you've got to make it a bigger production. He said, no, he said, well, look, he said, it's worked everywhere. He said, it'll work in Sydney. I said, I don't think so. He said, look, he said, trust me. I said, I trust you, Bill. But I, I can't see it work. It, 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 it's not going to work in Sydney with the way it is. He said, well, I think you're wrong. I said, well, I said, do it, Bill. I said, but I can't do it. I've I got to go, which I did. I left it and Bill brought it into Sydney and I was right and he was wrong. Just didn't go, didn't, didn't work. So several years go by. So I was asked by a dear friend of mine who I won't mention because she's uh, since passed, but she asked me if I would recite the Bush Christianing because she, she knew about Banjo at her newborn grandson's uh, christening. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. So I went down to where they were, some, some place out of Sydney, and um, I recited the Bush Christening, you know. On the altar of our cool where churches are few and men of religion are scanty, on a road never crossed, except by folks that are lost, one Michael McGee had a shanty. Now this Mike was, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. So, and... Uh, she said, oh, that was wonderful. That's, 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 thank you so much. She said, it was so good. 
uh, look, he said, I've got the, the book here of banjo Patterson poetry. Would you do The Man from Snowy River? I said, well, well let me see it. Let me see it. So I'd never done it in, in the, the traveling show. And uh, I looked at it and I said, and I, I said no, I said, this is, this is beyond me. This is far too much. I, I would make a mess of it and I don't want to sort of ruin the feeling that's, that everyone has, <laughs> that they've all got with the bush christening, you know. And so she said, no, that's fine. So I was driving back and Katie Manning was my partner at the time. And she'd been there with me. And we're driving back to Sydney. And I was thinking, you know, that the, the reception that that little moment had received and everything from the people that were there. And I said to her, do you think I could uh, write a, a new play about Banjo Patterson? A new one? She said, why not? I said, yeah, why not? And that, that was the gem of an idea. Mm. And so then I had to follow it through. So that's when I wrote Barry Crocker's Banjo and uh, did three years of research, spoke to everyone that I, that all the ancestors and got all the true stories. And uh, then I put that all together. And I remember that the first reading of the, of, the, of the play was four hours long. Oh, wow. And uh, we went to the Nimrod Theatre in this tiny little theatre and performed it. And it was a stinking hot night, I remember, just with, with the lights that were available, which is basically a spotlight. And <laughs> so I got right through the play. I, I don't know how the hell I remembered it all, but I did. And uh, at the end, we went into the little dressing room with Katie and you see, you know what we're going to do? I said, yeah. And it's an awful phrase, but it's one that they use. We've got to kill the babies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, You might be fond of the material, exactly. but for the sake of the show, you, you it's loved, got to go. You yeah. loved it little sections, but it does, it's not carrying the story forward. And uh, yeah, we're going to lose that, but I love that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant to what we should. We had to get tighten everything up, tighten it up, tighten it up, which we did. So over the next while, we tightened and tightened and tightened, and put on some little shows. And when we were touring, we were touring at the time with uh, with uh, educating Rita. Oh, of course, which you did you had done with Katie. Yeah, I'd already uh, contacted Ian DeGrucci was because I'd seen what he could do with projection. He was a wonderful. You, could, you know, turn a town hall into a racing car or whatever, or a tram, you know, it was uh, just incredible stuff. So I'd been in touch with him and I said, I had this vision of big screens all around the, and, and wherever we went, like Bill, Bill had these tiny little things, you know, we'll put the whole thing out. You know, the whole screens will be showing where we are, we're in the desert, we're in the desert. Mm. And so we, we devised, talked about these giant projectors we'd have that would, <laughs> Unbelievable things that we did. So we did it, and we did while we were doing educating reading. We did a couple of uh, little shows in in halls. We managed to get. Don't ask me how I got them, but I you do you do out of town tryouts. And we yeah, so what's And so we did it, and, and you know sometimes one of, one of the screens that would that would the screens were basically sheets hung up. You know, they weren't the proper screens, which had to be built and everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'd have little bits and more babies that have to be done away with, you know, and uh, eventually we sort of got a, 
a semblance of, of something that was happening. It was to the point where, you know, it, it, it was a production. Mm. So we went to the Malt House in, in Melbourne and we got a, a gig there. Uh, and we put up, I remember it took ages to put up all these screens, you know, to put them up into the flies and the projectors all had to be worked so that they'd synchronize with the, and it was, you know, I, I had no idea really how, how important and how crazy it was in a sense, you know, but we did it. And somehow it worked, you know, it, somehow it, we, we got it up and it went and it was very successful. And then I just took it everywhere yeah. after that. And for two years, traveled around Australia with it. And then I bought, bought it back when I came towards the end, I pulled it into a, a one act play. So I had to really shorten Fine it, tune, yeah. but put, make sure everything was, uh, was said and, uh, in, that, in that sort of one, one it was like a, an hour 40, uh, uh, yeah, an hour 20, I think, hour 20, one performance, we got everything in and, and finished up with it. And that could go into all the various clubs, you know, the RSLs and the, 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 the bigger clubs out in the country, you know, to places that we, I'd never been to before, but we went, you know. And touring, a great, great way to see the country. Touring again, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, don't ask me to do it now. No. <laughs> yeah, tell, do you miss the sound of applause and, and an audience? Not really. No. no. I mean, I had plenty, and I could pick up memories. And on the on the YouTubes, if I want to go there, I can hear the uh, the, the reaction. So, well, it's been a stellar career, and you've given us so so much over the decades. Yes, and um, we haven't even touched. The we edge haven't of it. even touched the edge <laughs> of it. But but Barry, thank you so much for uh, uh, the history of. Well, I hope I've, I've been entertaining. You've been and, very entertaining. And the. Uh, you can play a little bits of music and... Oh yes, I'm, look, our audience of listeners are going to be thrilled with, with hearing your vocal stylings yeah. as well throughout this, this well, conversation. And yes, uh, what, I, what I'll, I'll send you to is the... Uh, I'll get your email address. You can write, I don't have it, do I? I must have it. Yeah, yeah, we have somewhere, email, yeah. yeah. But I'll get you to write it out for me again. And uh, I'll send you the... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the, the whole, virtually the whole structure of, of banjo in, in as much as musically and the poems and the stories uh, that I put together for, which, which we sold as merch you know it's called Barry Meets Banjo Magnificent and uh, you know it's got all the stuff on there And listeners can also always access your albums on iTunes Yeah yeah. Thanks Barry Yeah but it, I hope I've been entertaining that's you all Oh, you have certainly been entertaining Mr. Crocker in these two episodes for stages and also in a lifetime of entertaining audiences around the world. What a magnificent professional life Barry Crocker has navigated and, and what a legacy he's given us with a vast repertoire of recordings. I've been listening to his many performances again in preparation of this conversation and I have to honestly say that Barry must be one of the finest voices to come out of Australia. Do yourself a great favour and seek out his work. It's absolutely brilliant. And as he said, you can access TV and some club performances through Barry Crocker's YouTube channel and recordings can be easily accessed, accessed now in iTunes. Thank you, Barry, for joining us in this very special double episode, a great way to begin Stages Season 4. 
and thank you for tuning in. It's great to be back. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time. Just when I thought our chance had passed You went and saved the best to last You went and saved the best to last